Talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, a nonprofit educational association for those working in the benefits industry. Every month, we share the biggest news in benefits, hottest industry trends, and legislative developments. We cover everything from retirement to health care, ACA, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm your host, Justin Held, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the resident International Foundation benefit gurus, Julie Stick and Kelly Colesrud. Welcome back, everyone. While we strive to be a little more accurate than the local weatherman, we pretty much got hit with a monsoon of news right after we posted last month's episode. That's right, Justin. Usually summer is a bit quieter, but it felt like there were daily and sometimes hourly updates. It's like the storm came before the calm. We've got a whirlwind of topics to cover, but don't worry. We've got a special guest at the end of the episode who will brighten your day with his interesting tale. All right, let's dive right in with the two-minute recap. Uh, Just a reminder that we are recording this on Monday, August 7th at 1 p.m. Central Time. So here's an update on a few of the changes since our last episode. Starting with paid family leave, we had mentioned the proposed expansion of the current New Jersey law. On June 22nd, the State Assembly passed a bill expanding the state's current paid leave law. The Senate passed the bill on June 26th, which includes a number of expansions. First, the maximum number of weeks that can be taken doubles from 6 to 12. Also, the actual benefits level increases from two-thirds of weekly wages to 90% of weekly wages. The definition of family members expanded to include siblings, grandparents, grandchildren, and parents-in-law. And finally, the minimum employer size for eligibility fell from 50 or more employees to 20 or more employees. The update here is that on July 21st, Governor Chris Christie vetoed the bill, saying it would increase taxes and hurt small businesses. So the current law will stay in place. Moving on to the conflict of interest fiduciary rule. This is the rule that requires financial advisors to act as fiduciaries, acting in the best interest of their clients. Uh, There has been some pushback on this rule. Oral arguments were held on July 31st in the case of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce versus the Department of Labor in the Northern District of Texas. And a decision could be announced by late September or early October. This case is a challenge to the fiduciary rule and could impact the rule's future. Also on June 8th, Republican Representatives Roe and Roscom introduced the Affordable Retirement Advice for Savers Act. It would repeal the fiduciary rule and institute a new definition of investment advice under ERISA, protecting investors and savers. On July 19th, the bill was marked up and passed by the House Education and Workforce Committee, 23 to 17. This is the first step of possibly being voted on by the entire House. Julie, taking a quick step back, uh, in my updates, I've discussed legislation, bills, laws, statutes, rules, regulations, this may cause some confusion. Can these terms be used interchangeably? Are they different? I think this would be a great time for our first Foundation from the Foundation, where we'll pause a moment to explain a concept related to our discussion. So what is the difference between legislation, a bill, a law, 
a statute, a rule, and a regulation. Bills, also called legislation, are proposed laws. A law, also known as a statute, is passed by a legislative body, like the U.S. Congress, and signed by the president, or, in the case of a state legislative body, a governor. A law initiates a change and indicates what will be legal and binding moving forward. Regulations, also called rules, are written by agencies to define and clarify a law. They often offer guidance and spell out actions to be taken and deadlines. Thank you for the clarification, Julie. And a reminder to all of our listeners, if news breaks and you can't wait until my two-minute recap next month to find out what happened, check out the Foundation's Benefit Transition Tracker at ifebp.org slash transition tracker. And sort through the latest updates on things like the fiduciary rule and health care reform. And speaking of health care reform, Kelly, something tells me you're becoming quite the storm chaser, keeping up with everything that happened in July. It certainly feels like it, Justin. We're in the eye of the storm now, but over the past few weeks, healthcare news was moving at 100 miles an hour. So let's start where we left off last episode. When we last spoke, the Senate had just received a score from the Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, on the Better Care Reconciliation Act, or BCRA. They didn't have enough votes to pass the bill, so the Senate delayed the vote until after the July 4th recess. Now, weren't we also waiting for a CBO score for a different version of the BCRA that included the Cruz Amendment? Yes, that's right, Julie. If I remember correctly, the Cruz Amendment, called the Consumer Freedom Amendment, would allow insurers to offer low-cost, low-coverage plans off of the exchanges as long as they still offered at least one ACA-compliant plan on the health insurance exchange. These plans, sometimes called limited benefit plans or, quote, skinny, unquote, plans, could ignore the ban on pre-existing condition exclusions and therefore could charge more to those with such conditions. Also, they wouldn't have to cover essential health benefits. Right you are again, Julie. Just to clarify, though, these skinny plans have nothing to do with the skinny repeal bill we'll be talking about later. Okay, good to know. Okay, let's get back to the storm that was brewing after the July 4th recess. During their first week back, Senate GOP members had discussions about whether to push forward with a vote or make further changes to the bill. At the end of the week, lightning struck. And things came to a halt as it was announced that Republican Senator John McCain from Arizona was having surgery to remove a blood clot above his eye and would need time to recover before he could vote on the bill. It was later announced that he had been diagnosed with brain cancer. The vote on the bill was expected to be very close, and so Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell delayed the vote again. Yeah, Kelly, as you've mentioned in the past, the Senate has 52 Republican senators, and some of them weren't necessarily in favor of the bill's Uh, that were being proposed. So getting that majority of 51 votes could have been difficult at that point. Exactly. The storm really picked up speed and force during the week of July 24th. On Tuesday, only a week after his diagnosis, Senator McCain made a dramatic return to Washington and gave an impassioned speech about how the health care reform process should have followed the traditional process of using committees and hearings. 
He did, however, cast the essential vote in favor of starting the debate of the proposed health care reform bills that week. The vote was tied 50 to 50, so Vice President Pence had to break the tie, and as expected, he voted with the Republicans. Later that same day, the Senate voted on the BCRA, which was essentially a bill to repeal much of ACA and replace it with other provisions. The bill was rejected by a vote of 43 to 57. On the next day, the Senate rejected another bill by a vote of 45 to 55. This bill, called the Obamacare Repeal Reconciliation Act, sought to repeal most of ACA, but did not include any replacement plan. The next day, Thursday, the storm really started swirling as they entered the vote-a-rama phase. Wait a minute. Are you taking poetic license here? Do they really use the term vote-a-rama? Yes, I know. It sounds like a carnival ride, doesn't it? After a bill is debated for 20 hours, there may be a vote-a-rama period where any senator can introduce an unlimited number of amendments that are voted on quickly without debate. The storm peaked in the early hours of Friday when another bill called the Health Care Freedom Act was voted on. This bill, also known as the Skinny Repeal Bill, would have repealed the individual mandate, repealed the employer mandate through 2024, given states greater flexibility for ACA waivers, defunded Planned Parenthood for one year, eliminated the medical device tax for three years, and increase the HSA contribution limit for three years. It was a really close vote, and some Republicans agreed to vote for it only because House leadership promised not to vote to enact the skinny repeal bill as is, but instead take it to conference. Okay, I think this would be a great time for another foundation from the foundation. So what does it mean when we say that a bill is going to conference? As we've mentioned in previous episodes, the process for enacting laws can get quite complicated. We all know that both the House and Senate must approve a bill before it goes to the President's desk for signature. But what happens if the House and the Senate pass different versions of the same bill? Now, if that happens, often they'll have a Congressional Conference Committee draft a compromise bill that both houses can accept. Both houses of Congress must eventually pass identical legislation for the bill to be presented to the president. Thank you, Julie. Okay, so let's finish this story. How did that vote go? Well, on Friday, July 28th at 1.40 a.m., the bill was rejected by a vote of 49 to 51. All 48 Democrats and independents voted against it, as did three Republicans, Susan Collins from Maine, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, and John McCain from Arizona. There were audible gasps in the room when John McCain held out his arm and literally gave it a thumbs down. He later explained his vote by saying that while the skinny repeal bill would have repealed some of ACA's most burdensome regulations, it offered no replacement to actually reform the health care system and deliver affordable, quality health care to our citizens. House Speaker Ryan's statement that the House would be willing to go to conference did not ease his concern that the bill could be taken up and passed at any time. He also said that the rushed process to just pass something on a strictly party-line basis was not the way to pass health care reform. 
That was quite the bit of drama, Kelly. All right, so we've appeared to enter the calm period after the storm. So what's next on the Doppler radar for healthcare reform? Currently, ACA is still the law of the land, but it continues to be on shaky ground. Congress is not giving up. The week following that dramatic vote, a bipartisan group of 43 House members calling themselves the Problem Solvers Caucus released proposals to fix ACA. Also, the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions, often known by the nickname the HELP Committee, announced they will be holding bipartisan hearings after Labor Day on ways to stabilize the ACA exchanges for 2018. So what about President Trump? I know he wasn't pleased about the failure of the repeal vote. What can he do to weaken the ACA? Yes, the president is definitely not pleased and is threatening to let Obamacare implode by not supporting the exchanges. His administration still has significant power to influence the future of the ACA exchanges or marketplaces. For example, his administration could decide to not promote or market the exchanges during the enrollment period. High exchange enrollment is dependent on this marketing, and the exchanges are more successful, affordable, and efficient when greater numbers enroll. Now, the president could also weaken enforcement of the mandates by allowing more exemptions or by not requiring reporting, right? That's right, Julie. A new threat the president mentioned recently is that he could withhold the employer contributions for health care coverage for members of Congress and their staffers. Like most people with employer coverage, the majority of health premiums, 72% in this case, are paid by the employer. Members of Congress might be able to afford to pay for coverage without help, but many staffers could not. This proposed action would basically mean a large pay cut for staffers. Members of Congress are concerned that this could result in a brain drain because staffers will seek employment elsewhere where health care coverage is more affordable. Kelly, what about those cost-sharing subsidies? Doesn't the president decide whether to reimburse insurance companies for those subsidies that make coverage more affordable for low-income individuals? I know we've discussed those in a bunch of our past episodes. Yes, Justin, you're exactly right. If the government chooses not to pay these subsidies, the cost of health care premiums on the exchanges will rise significantly. The Trump administration has continued to pay these subsidies so far this year as Congress tried to work on passing health care reform, but he is threatening not to do so for August. We're still waiting for his decision. He's getting pressure to continue these payments from state governors and even from GOP members of Congress. Without these payments, the stability of the exchanges and health care coverage for millions of people would be seriously compromised. I believe there's additional news about the cost-sharing subsidies because of developments in the House versus Price legal case, right? Yes, there is important news with that case. Just to refresh everyone's memory about this lawsuit, the House of Representatives originally sued the Obama administration for paying out cost-sharing amounts to insurers without specific annual appropriation from Congress. The Obama administration was vigorously defending its right to make these payments until the end of 2016. When the Trump administration took office, it did not want to continue to support ACA by paying these subsidies and asked the court to delay the lawsuit while Congress worked on health care reform. When it became obvious that the Trump administration was not going to defend the right to pay the cost-sharing subsidies, 
Several states, led by Democrats, filed a motion to intervene and continue defending the subsidies. They stated that health care coverage for millions in their states was at risk and the Trump administration was not adequately defending their interest. Both sides filed briefs arguing their positions, and on August 1st, the Court of Appeals ruled that these 17 states and the District of Columbia do have a right to defend the cost-sharing subsidies if the Trump administration drops the case. This ruling does not mean the states have won the continuation of those subsidies yet, but if the administration stops paying the subsidies, the states would be able to sue to require the payments. Also, if the states ultimately convince the appellate court that the subsidies were in fact appropriated, the administration would be required to pay them. So Kelly, it sounds like another health care store may be brewing here. How are the insurance companies reacting to all this uncertainty? The insurance industry is definitely not a fan of all of this uncertainty. Final deadlines for setting premiums and committing to participation in the 2018 exchanges are fast approaching. Premium increases are averaging anywhere from 10 to 50 percent. Some insurers have decided to pull out and others are filling in the gaps. There is concern that some rural areas of the country won't have any insurance carriers willing to offer exchange coverage in their area. For example, at the beginning of July, 40 counties in the country had no carrier for their exchanges. As of August 4th, that number had dropped to just 17 counties. One county in Ohio, one county in Indiana, one county in Wisconsin, and 14 counties in Nevada. The total number of enrollees in these 17 counties is about 9,600 people. And the reason there's a difference during the month of July is that several insurers saw those gaps and stepped in to offer coverage. So as you can see, it's a very fluid situation. So what happens to individuals who don't have the option to buy coverage on the exchange? Well, it is possible that some people in those counties with no exchange insurers in 2018 will be able to purchase individual plans off exchange, but this coverage would not qualify for financial assistance. If no exchange insurer participates in their county, people that rely on these subsidies may be unable to afford insurance off exchange. If the deluge of healthcare updates has you swamped, take a break from the day to day and join us in Denver, Colorado from September 17th to the 20th for the 36th Annual Employee Benefits Symposium. Solution-oriented workshops, discussions, case studies, and strategic sessions are designed with your professional needs in mind. To learn more or register, visit ifebp.org symposium. Great reminder, Justin. I still need to catch my breath from all of that healthcare news. Julie, why don't you take over for a bit and give an update on the Multi-Employer Pension Reform Act, also known as MEPRA. Will do, Kelly. We've talked about MEPRA in several episodes, and there continues to be more developments. Hey, Justin, doesn't your dad, John, tune in every month to learn more about this? He does. So, Dad, it's time to listen up. All right, here we go. One of the main MEPRA provisions involves the option for multi-employer pensions in critical and declining status to apply for benefit reductions, also known as benefit suspensions. As we've discussed over the past several months, the applications of several pension funds have been denied. Until just recently, only one had been approved. 
On July 13th, the IRS released revised procedures on how to file an application for benefit reductions. For you benefit nerds out there, it's IRS Revenue Procedure 2017-43. These procedures are to be used for applications filed on or after September 1st. Julie, since our last episode, I had read about two other applications that have been approved. Can you tell us more about these? Sure will. The first is United Furniture Workers Pension Fund A from Nashville, Tennessee. This plan applied for both a partition and benefit reductions. Both were approved on July 20th. According to their applications, this fund would have been insolvent as of 2021. As of January 1st, 2017, plan assets were $51.3 million and liabilities were $189 million for a funding ratio of 27%. The PBGC approved their plan for partition. This is the first partition to be approved under MEPRA. Julie, weren't there partitions allowed before MEPRA? There were, Kelly, but the PBGC could only approve them and step in if the plan was in bankruptcy. Benefits were paid out at the PBGC guarantee rate. Under MEPRA partitions, the PBGC can step in sooner and help plans by providing some financial assistance if it determines that doing so will keep the original plan solvent. Under MEPRA partitions, benefits are reduced to 110% of the PBGC guarantee. Okay, thanks. That's much clearer now. Carry on. The United Furniture Workers Pension Fund A partition was approved conditionally by the PBGC so long as the Treasury Department would approve the benefit reduction application. Under the partition, the partitioned section of the plan, called the successor plan, will take on all guaranteed benefit liabilities associated with the plan's terminated vested participants and 56% of the guaranteed benefit liabilities associated with the plan's retirees, beneficiaries, and disabled participants. The PBGC will give financial assistance to the successor plan to help pay these benefits. So a partition can remove troubled liabilities from the pension plan, much like I can remove a bruised spot on an apple. Hey, that's a good visual, Kelly. The remaining portion of the plan is known as the original plan. The plan's board of trustees will administer both the original plan and the successor plan. Julie, you said the benefit reductions were approved as well? Yes. Also on July 20th, the Department of Treasury approved reductions for this plan. It's the second plan to receive approval for reductions. The reductions will affect the original plan. Benefits will be reduced to 110% of the PBGC guarantee, excluding disabled retirees or those who will be older than age 80 as of September 30th. Of the fund's 9,900 participants, 7,100 will see no reduction. The remaining 2,800 participants will see reductions of anywhere up to 62% of their benefits. The average reduction will be 12.7%. So Julie, are these reductions a done deal? MEPR requires a participant vote for final approval. In this case, the vote opened August 3rd and closes on August 24th. Voting can be done via phone, the web, or a paper ballot. Under the law, an abstention counts as a yes vote. 
Now, if the vote is yes overall as of August 24th, the reductions and partition will be effective September 1st. Wait a second. Isn't there a caveat on that vote where the Department of Treasury can override a participant no vote? Yes. If a no vote is returned from participants, the Treasury Department, the Department of Labor, and the PBGC will confer to decide whether the plan in question is, quote, systemically important, unquote. Now that's defined as a plan that, without MEPRA reductions, would need more than $1 billion in PBGC assistance to support participants at the PBGC guarantee level. So we will let you know in our next episode about how that vote on this first plan turns out. Julie, can you tell us about the second plan that got approved? On August 3rd, the benefit reduction application of the New York State Teamsters Conference Pension and Retirement Fund in Syracuse was approved. The plan was projected to become insolvent during 2026. The approval allows for an across-the-board reduction of 18% for all active participants and 29% for all retired and terminated vested participants under the age of 75. For participants between ages 75 and 79, the benefits reduction is lower. There will be no benefits reduction for those who are age 80 or older or who are disabled. The participant vote is scheduled to open on August 14th, and if it's approved, reductions would begin on October 1st. Thanks, Julie. MEPRA actions are so closely linked to the PBGC, and as we know, the PBGC is an agency that provides insurance for defined benefit pension plan benefits. Justin, can you tell us the latest about the PBGC's financial status? On August 3rd, the PBGC released their latest projections report outlining the financial conditions. News continues to be positive about their program for single-employer defined benefit plans. That program covers 28 million people in 22,000 plans. The program projects a surplus of $9.6 billion for 2026. The big news here, however, is the multi-employer program, which continues to struggle. The program covers 10.5 million people in 1,350 plans. As we've been discussing, more than 100 plans covering more than 1 million participants are facing ultimate insolvency. The PBGC's multi-employer program is projected to become insolvent by the end of the fiscal year 2025, so no improvement from projections released last year. The state of multi-employer pensions and the PBGC is a sad example of a perfect storm for which there is no easy solution. We're keeping an eye on this and we'll continue to report on updates. Thanks, Julie and Justin. So true story. True story. True story. So true story here for you. Ooh, that's a spiffy new intro. Yeah, I like it. Kelly, you recently sat down with a foundation favorite, Larry Beebe. Some might say that they have their finger on the pulse of the benefits industry, but Larry's got more of a thumb on the industry. Is that correct? Yeah, you could definitely say that. Let's listen in. Today I'm chatting with Larry Beebe, a partner with the accounting firm of Bond Beebe, based in the Washington, D.C. metro area. Welcome, Larry. Thank you, Kelly. So, Larry, can you tell us a bit about your area of expertise in the benefits industry? I've been auditing employee benefit plans 
since the early 1970s. I spend most of my time in that particular area. And because we audit a lot of employee benefit plans, one of the things we discover in many instances is fraud. We discover instances where people are basically using plan assets for their own nefarious purposes and, in effect, are trying to get away with it. I think we published an article that you wrote called Larry's Laws of Larceny or something like that, didn't we? That's correct. (laughs) So, Larry, you've been a friend of the International Foundation for a while now, serving on many committees and panels, and in arguably your most prestigious role as a legendary first base coach for the Foundation's softball team, the Honey Badgers. But in all those years that you've worked in the industry, I bet you have some really great stories Yeah, I do, I think. Could you tell us one of them? Yeah, I'm going to tell you a story that's a true story. But when it first happened, I wasn't sure that it was a true story. In other words, it was told by somebody else. And for years, I called it an urban legend because I didn't think it had actually happened. One of my partners told it to me, and he's long since gone. And I thought, well, this is just not possible. It, It couldn't have occurred this way. But it was a story back in the old days where a pension fund on an annual basis required the pensioners to, in effect, put their thumbprint on a check so that they could verify that that person was still living. And so what happened is this old guy died and his wife only had one request from the funeral home, and that is she requested his thumb. And so she got hold of his thumb and she kept it in a jar of formaldehyde. And once a year, she would take it out, put it on an ink pad, and would endorse the check with his thumbprint. And I told this as an urban legend. I said, it's one of those things that sounds good, but it probably never happened. Well, I was telling the story that way at an International Foundation annual event, and one of the guys that I was telling it about said, no, it's actually true. It actually happened to me. I was an attorney for this trust fund years ago, and it actually did occur. So to my amazement, what I thought was an urban legend turned out to be a true story. Wow, that is almost unbelievable. So what do you think is the moral of the story? Well, What's it has tip? a good moral, and that is it doesn't really matter whether the story is true or not. What really matters is the fact that if you have a system that if there's a weakness in internal controls, somebody is going to figure out a way to, in effect, drive a Mack truck through that hole in the internal controls and figure out how to steal. So don't assume that just because you have internal controls that prevent theft, that somebody isn't going to figure out a way around that internal control and isn't going to actually steal from the trust fund. Well, that is a good thing to remember. The International Foundation recently hosted its inaugural Fraud Prevention Institute for Employee Benefit Plans. Attendees learned about emerging trends in cybersecurity, identified tools for deterring data breaches, and received guidance on internal controls and risk prevention. If you miss this conference, consider attending the Foundation's 63rd Annual Conference this October in Las Vegas which will feature similar fraud-focused sessions. Learn more at ifebp.org slash usannual. Thank you, Larry, so much for sharing your true story with us. Thank you, Kelly.
Wow, that was quite a story, Kelly. It sounds like she was caught red-handed. Oh, no. But yes, it's a good reminder that fraud can come in many forms. And on that note, let's take a breather before the next round of storms picks up. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll chat with you again in September. In the meantime, if you like what you hear, please rate or review us on iTunes. It helps others find us. Today's program is copyrighted in 2017 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.